0: Of an interview with Ansan San Suu Kyi, broadcast at the United Nations General Assembly uh, a few months ago. And we'll have an opportunity to see a bit more of her at the close of tonight's program. I'm Lyndon Chubin, program manager at the Asia Society. And we are delighted to be presenting with Penn American Center, a program to commemorate the 10th anniversary of the pro-democracy uprisings in Burma. When Penn contacted us in late September about collaborating, we jumped at the opportunity to join them in developing a program which would heighten public awareness of Burma's struggle for free expression through the power of words. We have a very distinguished group of readers tonight who we want to thank for joining us in an event that we hope will further your understanding of the many voices of Burma through their readings of banned and controversial readings uh, writings of the last decade. And to continue the discussion of these important issues, on Monday evening at the Asia Society, we will host a panel of experts examining the current political situation in Burma, focusing on the spread of AIDS and HIV, as well as the effects of the narcotics trade on the country and its people. So through both of these programs, uh, in addition to the panel exhibition in in the lobby and various brochures, you should begin to get a clearer picture of events in Burma and some of the efforts being made internationally to promote peace, prosperity, and respect for human rights. We want to thank the Open Society Institute's Burma Project for their support and invaluable assistance in planning these programs uh, in addition to their numerous and important educational projects. And you'll hear from Maureen Twin of OSI a little later this evening. And now it's my pleasure to introduce Michael Roberts, executive director of Pan American Center, to tell you more about tonight's program. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Lyndon, and thank you all for coming tonight. I first have to depart from our program for a moment to salute a stalwart friend of human rights who died tragically yesterday, Alan Pakula, who together with his wife Hannah labored tirelessly over many years on behalf of free expression and the rights of oppressed people everywhere. We will dearly miss him and our deepest sympathies are with Hannah and her family. Let me next thank our friends at the Asia Society for providing this wonderful setting for us tonight and to Arya Nair and Maureen Ong Twin from the Open Society Institute uh, Burma Project for the extraordinary and indispensable support uh, that made this program possible. And I particularly want to thank the wonderful cast of writers and artists who will be reading for us tonight. I could say a good deal more about each one, but in the interest of time, I will just refer you to your program. Let me say something about Penn. It's an international membership organization of writers dedicated to the defense of free expression and the advancement of literature. For 77 years, we've worked to call the world's attention to the plight of writers, artists, and others imprisoned or otherwise threatened for their work. We are honored to join the Open Society Institute, the Asia Society, and all of you here tonight to commemorate the mass pro-democracy movement that flourished 10 years ago in Burma, before the brutal suppression that began in September of 1988. Through poetry, published stories, debates, and interviews, peaceful protests, and nationwide strikes, the people of Burma took to the streets to give a clear message to the authorities. The time had come for dictatorial one-party rule to give way to free expression and multi-party government. In the crackdown that followed, writers and other intellectuals were targeted, censored, arrested, tortured, and exiled. Some of their stories were told in Penn's anthology, Inked Over, Ripped Out, which is available in the uh, Asia Society bookstore in the lobby, and others are chronicled in the Open Society Institute's exhibition, Voices of 88, which I hope you've had the chance to look through uh, during the reception. We have an extraordinary lineup of writers tonight who will present banned and controversial Burmese writing. Several of the selections are anonymous to protect their authors who remain vulnerable to reprisals in Burma. Two of tonight's readings, the poem, We're Not Dead Yet, and the short story, Children Who Play in Back Alleys, were written by pen honore members, Burmese writers thrown in prison for their courage to speak out through the written word. Described as Burma's most prominent woman journalist, Daw San San is serving a 10-year prison sentence. The other writer, whom we'll refer to by her pen name, Adaram, was arrested at the age of 28 and is not due for release from prison until 2013. Tonight, as we listen to their banned writing, we reaffirm our commitment to their struggle for freedom. I am honored to present our first reader. Please join me in welcoming Mr. Spalding Gray.
2: Thank you. It's not too, not too potent, this microphone. Uh, like most of us, Hunters prefer good PR to bad PR. The Burmese junta used to be called the SLORC, Slork, or State Law and Order Restoration Council. And last year um, they renamed themselves SPDC, or State Peace and Development Council, in hopes of a better image. Every day, the state-controlled media sing the praises of the military while denouncing its enemies. Here's a sample of the new light of Myanmar from last June. Myanmar today is a sovereign, independent nation with legislative, executive, and judicial powers. The State Peace and Development Council is a legitimate government, and it has the right to exercise sovereign powers in the public interest. With goodwill, it is building a stable, peaceful, modern, developed nation today. While preventing the country from falling into the hands of the neo-colonialists and their stooges, who are axe handles, it is effectively and successfully undertaking nation-building tasks. Indeed, a law has been promulgated to ensure the success of the National Convention. It is a new law, 5-slash-96, promulgated on the 7th of June, 1997, entitled, quote, Law Protecting the Peaceful and Systematic Transfer of State Responsibility and the Successful Performance of the Function of the National Convention Against Disturbances in Opposition, Close quote. According to Section 3, Chapter 3, of the said law, individuals or organizations are prohibited from disturbing, destroying, obstructing, inciting, delivering speeches, making oral or written statements, and disseminating in order to undermine, belittle, or make people misunderstand the functions being carried out by the National Convention for the emergence of a firm and enduring Constitution. According to section four of the law, violators on conviction, will be punished with the imprisonment for a minimum of term of five years to a maximum term of 20 years, and may also be liable to a fine. It should be pointed out that Daw Chi is just a guest of Myanmar. Being the wife of the British man, she has no right to stand for election. After winning the Nobel Prize, she and her family have become millionaires. They have a three-story building and a limousine. She should not cause destruction to Myanmar to get more prizes in cash from the West, nor should she disturb stability and peace in our country. Our Myanmar law, as well as Myanmar public opinion, will no longer tolerate any such traitorous acts.
3: The public enemy that they're talking about, of course, is Aung sung Suu Kyi, uh, Nobel Prize, Prize laureate and leader of the National League for Democracy, the party that won a landslide victory in 88, but then was immediately outlawed. And she was put under house arrest. This is uh, something she wrote after she was put under house arrest. Many, indeed, are the uses of adversity And one of the most valuable is a unique opportunity it offers for discovering little-known aspects of the human society in which we live. The experience gained by those of us who have have borne the full force of state persuasion is not always comfortable, but it is very enriching. Injustice and cruelty are transformed from the ingredients of a ripping drama to the hazards of everyday existence. During the hectic days of late May and early June, when a series of c- critical political events were triggered off by the arrests of the NLD members elected by Parliament, elected to Parliament, a stream of foreign correspondents came to find out how we were coping with the situation. One of them commented on the fact that we did not appear to be unhappy. U Tin U is smiling broadly. U Chi Mung is cracking jokes, he said. Why are you not in a state of distress? Isn't the situation rather grim? I suppose some would have seen the situation as grim, but to us, it was just another challenge. And the knowledge that we were facing it together with proven friends was simple reason for good cheer. A doctor once recommended that thinking happy thoughts as a most effective remedy for uh, diverse illnesses. Certainly, one of the happiest of thoughts is one's friends, old friends with whom you have shared youthful dreams of an ideal world, new friends with whom you are striving to achieve a realistic vision of that ideal. It is comforting to know that friends you have not met for several decades, leading secure lives in countries where your rights are protected by law, care as much for your welfare now as they did in the days when the Beatles were young and you argued over Dag Hammarskjöld's markings. I did not argue over Doug Hammershield's markings <laughs> myself. <laughs> Friends telephone across continents and oceans to find out how I am and to exchange news. We never talk about any- anything world-shaking, never discuss anything out of the ordinary. We just make conversational inquiries about each other's health and families and a few lighthearted remarks about the current situation. But each unimportant conversation is a solemn, com- solemn confirmation of friendship. I have a friend who, if I happen to be too busy to take the call, simply leaves a message. Tell her I called. It's enough to dissolve all the cares of the day. According to the teachings of Buddhism, a good friend is one who gives things hard to give, does what is hard, bears hard words, tells you his secrets, guards your secrets assiduously, does not forsake you in times of want, and does not condemn you when you are ruined. With such friends, One can travel the roughest road and not be defeated by hardship. Indeed, the rougher the path, the greater the delight and the company. Good and noble friends who stand by us in times of adversity.
4: I'm going to read is it. called Let's Hound Her Out, and it recently ran in both the Burmese and English version of the New Light of Myanmar. No, not right, no good, no can do, don't give, don't come, don't invest, don't deal, don't support, don't accept, opposition talk, no. Optimism. Holder of eight negates. Miss Trouble is acting to destroy while pretending to love our union. No matter how troubling, we'll not be intimidated. Citizens unite. Let's hound her out.
5: I'm going to read an excerpt from a short story by Penn Honorary Member Dao San San Wei that did not pass the Press Scrutiny Board in 1989. The author was arrested on the same day as Aung Sung Su Chi and spent 10 months in prison. And then in 1994, she was arrested again along with her daughter and sentenced, as you just heard, to 10 years for allegedly passing information. The story Called children who play in the back alleyways is from the 1993 Penn American Center's report inked over ripped out Burmese storytellers and the censors this is from the children who play in the back alleyways on evenings when the electricity goes off in our neighborhood the streets are usually full of people when power cuts occur on moonlit nights nervous types like myself breathe a little easier. The sound of children's laughter seems louder and more vivacious, and the teenagers strum softly at their guitars, playing not only the latest hits, but also the old familiar tunes that tend to linger sweetly in the air, lifting the heart, yet bringing sad thoughts. The noise of the young children running here and there, chanting in shrill voices often disturbs me, though, and I have to shout angrily at them to drive them away. I guess I'm glad the scamps can play so happily. Yet at the same time, I get a little anxious. The scrub and long grass where they run around playing hide and seek is full of vipers and scorpions, and the spot just behind our row of little houses is a favorite with the mongooses. The children of our neighborhood are quite familiar with mongooses, but all the same, it could be nasty if they stepped on one in the dark. Even though mongooses don't usually attack people, They will react violently to being touched, biting back if they're hurt. They say mongoose bites are hard to heal. Only last year, a child who had been bitten by one died before reaching the hospital. And children have such short memories, don't they? They They're heedless and quickly forget things that have happened to them. They haven't yet learned to feel fear. Tonight, I see the kids playing recklessly. They could easily come to harm. The dim yellow street lights in the faint twilight make the main road treacherous, with its passing cyclists and sidecars plying for hire. And in the back alleys and on the patches of waste ground, there could be scorpions and snakes. But wait a minute, suddenly I remember. Isn't there somewhere just up the road where they could play to their heart's content? Isn't there a seesaw, some swings, green grass and beds of colorful flowers just about to bloom and benches with fresh paint just about dry by now? Here they could shout, let off steam and make as much noise as they liked. Leaving the shade of an almond tree, I emerge into the dappled moonlight onto the tarmac road and look around in search of the children. Boys, come back. Bring your friends. All of you come over here. With a patter of feet, the children come running at top speed and gather around me, panting for breath. My youngest son, Moonface, throws his arms around my waist. Come on, all of you. We'll go up to the park at the end of the road. There's much more space up there. Come on, I'll take you. Oh, but Mommy, he protests. His little arms around my waist loosen. I'm afraid to go. The tremulous words come from a little one in the group. I'm not afraid, but I did see something, says one of the older boys, Zo Kose. What are you saying? Afraid of what? Oh, Mommy, you know, it's it's Ko Chan A. He was a very good friend of ours. Yes, Auntie, says another, he always helped us when we were flying our kites. When that big boy was with us, no one dared try to beat us, and our group was the champion at kite flying in our neighborhood. And, Auntie, he died in a moment, too. I can just see him now. As their voices clamor one after another, I, too, imagine that I can see the boy. His friends are carrying the lifeless body out from the tea shop, but Chanai is no more, and the tea shop has gone, too. And along with the tea shop, the nearby Arakan noodle stalls and the beetle and cigarette sellers have vanished. They said the itinerant sellers with their stalls scattered in a makeshift manner here and there were spoiling the neighborhood's tidy aspect. And so they made them clear out. And all that remains is this area of level ground, which they've turned into a children's playground, an expanse of green grass and seesaws and swings and neat beds of colorful flowers. It's the best place for you to play. What's wrong with it? Come on, let's go. I'm afraid to go. It's the same little boy as before. What are you afraid of, silly? I scold. I'm not afraid, but I can see him there. It's the older boy again. What do you mean, see him? You mean you're imagining his ghost? The children are quiet. Taking advantage of their silence, I begin to lecture them in true adult fashion. Have they ever seen a ghost? I, for one, never have. There aren't any ghosts. Ghosts simply don't exist. But scientific ghosts are more frightening. We've seen them in video movies. All you kids ever do is watch those videos. I don't feel like playing anymore, one of the children says. I can see Coach on A right now with his bright red shirt but he was wearing a white shirt. No, it was red. Stop arguing, it's already half past nine. The children scamper off to their homes and I walk home too, my heart heavy. I can't help wondering what more can be done to persuade those children to use that playground. Somehow, I must get them to put all these notions out of their head. And somehow, I know it will fall to me alone to do it For as a writer and mother, I guess I'm the only one around here that can exorcise these particular ghosts. P.S. This past June, thousands of Burmese flocked to a section of Rangoon called Mye drawn by reports of poltergeists in a television store, which was built on the spot where blood had been shed in 1988.
6: Some Burmese escaped the uh, brutal crushing of the 1988 demonstrations. Here's the testimony of a student who was caught while he tried to escape the country that summer and who eventually made it to the border. He now lives in India. I feel it is my duty to speak, lest the world forget, for all those who can no longer speak. On the night of 18 September, 1988, the army seized all power in Burma. Tonight, I thought, is the last night for happiness. The next day, the streets of Rangoon were thronged. Over a loudspeaker, the new rulers repeated their message. Hidden enemies will be wiped out. The massacre of students began. Thousands were mowed down. Some of the student leaders were beheaded. On a moonless night, I escaped from my home and fled for my life. For several days, I walked westward Beside the road lay corpses, students, and demonstrators. But now I hardly noticed them. I do not know how many miles I walked. My feet had taken control over my body. I walked and walked. Near the Burma-India border, three Slork army men spotted me. They led me through the woods. My arms drew numb from the tight cords they placed around my elbows. We came to a stop at a collection of buildings in a clearing. They made me wait. After an hour, a prison guard led me to a large grove of mango trees. I saw many other prisoners, each tied to the base of a trunk. They loosened the rope around my elbows, but tied a longer rope around my wrists, then around the trunk. I sat with my back to the mango tree and began to pray. Something crawled on my neck. It bit me red ants they crawled on my shoulders my scalp my chest the more i tried to crush them the more they swarmed over me the afternoon sun sunk sank beneath below the branches then a brutal burly man walked up to me were you a student leader he asked no i said a taxi driver no he roared you're lying he called for someone else. They pushed me over on my side. While the second man held my neck down in the dirt, the burly one put my hand on top of the mango tree root and stepped on my wrist. Shall we cut off his toe, the second man said. I remember little after that. A late afternoon, a sunset. It was a long, long night. A few weeks later, they came for me again. I was brought before the King of Death, who wore a green cap and rubber sandals. We know who you are, said the King of Death gently. You are one of the student leaders. Make it easier on yourself. Tell us the truth. I was just a taxi driver, I said. A kick came to my ribs. I was dragged away by the legs. Later, the guards led a group of us into a field where we saw a double line of wooden structures with cross pieces. Prisoners were tied to the crosses, the weight of their bodies sagging against the ropes. I fought and shouted, Just shoot, I said, get it over with. After six days and nights with no food or water, they untied the ropes and let me down. Are you a student leader? A faraway voice asked. I tried to form words, but my lips wouldn't work. Finally, I whispered, no, just shoot. I'm happy to die now. Just shoot me.
7: interrogation, as the next piece is titled, is by Mud Tinti Moore, a student at Rangoon University in 1998, 1988, and active with the All-Burma Federation of Student Unions. She was arrested in 1990, detained for a month in an interrogation center, and sentenced to three years under the 1950 Emergency Provision Act. In 1992, she was released and subsequently fled the country. July 1990. It was 10 o'clock at night when officers from the Military Intelligence Service, MIS, Special Branch and Township Police arrived at my home, searched the house and confiscated a number of documents. They then arrested me for distributing anti-Slork pamphlets in vasin the city in which I was living at the time. One evening, a week after my arrest, I was ordered to gather my possessions. A car from MI4 had arrived, and I was taken from the cell and told to get into the vehicle. After we passed through Bassin, the soldiers handcuffed me and placed a hood over my head, and I immediately complained. We don't want you to know where we're going, one of the soldiers replied. I know where we're going. I was born here, I shouted. We're going to MI4. In the evening of the third day, someone opened the door and I was ordered to turn my back to them. They then blindfolded me and dragged me to another room. After 10 minutes, someone ordered me to sit on a chair and I realized that an interrogation was starting. He then read out the supposed testimony of one of my friends who was also arrested, over the pamphlets, and I immediately realized that they were attempting to trap me. After the MIS interrogated me for six hours, a soldier took me back to my dark cell. The next day I had a headache and I was ill from the cold. That evening a soldier came, blindfolded me, and took me from my cell. My interrogator, a different man from the first session, read out a list of the members of the Irrawaddy Division, all Burma Federation of Student Unions, and then started asking me questions. Do you admit that you're a member of the ABFSU? When I said nothing, he threw something hard at my face. It hit my upper lip, which then began to swell. Why did you join an illegal organization? The ABFSU is not an illegal organization, I replied. I joined the union because I was a student. In 1989, General Kenya allowed Min Zeya to form a student union and, this is Irrawaddy Division under General Mie Aung, he interrupted. You may be able to form a union in Rangoon, but don't even think about it here. There is only one Burma. The same rules should apply to all, I shouted. The officer then slapped me a number of times, and other officers punched me on my back. I only then realized that there were a number of soldiers around me. After that, he threatened me that I shouldn't forget that I was a virgin. This terrified me more than the beatings. By the fifth day, I was sick with the temperature. I banged on the door of my cell and shouted that I needed some medicine. I heard some officers laughing outside and one of them asked what was happening. I told them I was sick with a fever and asked for a blanket, some medicine, and hot water. What fever is that? Love sickness? The officer replied. I was angry but too weak to respond. At about midnight, an officer came and put the hood over my head and pulled me from the cell. He said that I could have everything that I wanted if I answered the truth. However, I wasn't able to reply because I was too sick from my fever. The officer pulled me along while asking me questions. Who did Kokoji meet with when he came to Basin? Kokoji was the vice chairman of the ABFSU. I can't remember, I replied, I'm dizzy and I have a high fever. He then ordered me to sit on the floor and lean against the wall. I heard him tell someone to bring a cup of coffee. He continued to ask me questions, but I can't remember them or what I answered. After taking the medicine, I thought I felt better. Then the officer asked me, do you know what that medicine was you just took? I was suddenly terrified and angry with myself as I had no idea what the medicine was. Another officer said, the medicine you took heightens your sexuality. I cried and screamed and tried to remove the hood from my head. The officers took me back to my pitch black cell, and I remember crying the whole night until I lost my voice. Over the next few days, they didn't ask me any questions, and later I found out that they were busy with newcomers. During this time, I could hear doors being opened and closed near my cell and the sounds of shouting and beatings. Sometimes I would hear someone complaining next door. In my dark, unlit cell, time passed very slowly. All I could do was eat my two meals a day and listen to all the activity around me, and I realized that the newcomers were frequently being pulled in and out of their cells. After spending nearly a month in the interrogation center, Major Wen, the commander of MI4, came and met with me. What did you think of our military coup in September 1988, he asked me. From what I know, all the senior government officers were arrested in the 1962 military coup I began. But in 1988, the slog protected the senior BSPP government officials instead of arresting them. He asked me many other questions, but I don't remember them all. Then a soldier led me into the hall and ordered me to sit on a chair. Five minutes later, D'Orton de A, our township judge, and two other men entered the hall and sat in front of me. They asked me to sign a confession and inquired whether or not I was injured. I showed them my swollen upper lip, but they didn't write anything about it on my confession. The next evening, I was sent to Bassin Prison. I was subsequently sentenced to three years imprisonment and was released in September
5: 1992. The poem I'm about to read, We Challenge You, was written in defiance by an 18-year-old student who had been raped by the Burmese security forces in March 1988. The poem was published in one of the newspapers and newsletters that flourished uncensored for a few weeks during the Rangoon spring of 1988. It is featured in the exhibit, Voices of 88. We challenge you. There I am, a virgin, pretty, a student at the university, fair and full of youth, with nothing artificial on my body, all natural curves. My age, counted on tender leaves of the at the time of the 88 uprising, a shapely 18. Here at our university, what is there to fear? I'll fight, fight, and be unafraid, with no thought of surrender. Let's form a student union. It was in March, 1988. One night in one of our fascist state prisons, I was robbed of my virginity, unable to defend myself. I was pinioned, powerless to move or struggle. I couldn't, I couldn't. It was like drowning in shallow water. My lips were kissed by those fascists. My breasts were in their mouths. And inside me, those fascists, I was raped by a fascist security force, possessed alive by some evil gnat inside, as the guns of the moment with endless lust tore away my virginity, one, two, three, four, and more. I all but died. Nevertheless, I did not die, nor did I cry, though my womb had been defiled I still love our resistance movement and love democracy. So hey, you fascist government, for gnawing away at my flesh and blood, I can never, never forgive you, never, never till the end of time. And hey, successors of that government, you lackeys, you security force dogs, come on if you've got the guts, come with your guns out down the path of bloodshed. There's a young woman here who's working for peace, a Burmese flower that has been ravished. You government lot, I'll fight to bring you down. We'll never be brought to our knees. We'll never surrender.
4: Students were not the only demonstrators in 1988. Some soldiers chose to defy orders to fire on unarmed civilians. Members of the armed forces deserted and joined the democracy movement. This testimony is from a Navy man who did just that. In 1988, I was in the Navy and lived in Rangoon. One day in September, about 10 days before the military seized power, some men in my unit got in contact with the student activists for the first time. We started to make lists of those who wanted to support them. Then four leading seamen, myself included, led about 80 people from the naval unit to the students' central demonstration camp at Rangoon General Hospital. We deserted at four in the morning. The next day, we took part in a remarkable demonstration with representatives of all the armed forces. Army, Navy, Air Force, alongside students and civilians, and ordinary people. We deserters were overjoyed every time we met fellow deserters on the street. On the next day, a leading Navy officer brought a letter ordering us to return to the unit, but I continued with my activities. Myself and a guy from the Navy Engineering Unit tried to meet with some of the troop commanders from the number 33 Light Infantry Division, to urge them not to shoot at the demonstrators. They promised us they would not shoot. Then the military took power, and the arrests and shootings began. I packed my belongings, and I destroyed my diary, personal letters, and ID card along the way. I left for the Thai-Burma border, where I joined the Democratic Alliance of Burma. I was shocked when out on the border I read the Amnesty International reports about the treatment meted out to the ethnic groups by the Burmese army. I began translating the reports into the Burmese language. Three years later, I was accepted for resettlement in Canada. In October 1994, I got my first job in Canada as a sales clerk at a convenience store. All I was familiar with was arms and ammunition, but now I learned about concessionaries, chocolate bars, and grocery items. I work at nights and go to college by day. I'm in the third year of a course on business information systems. By the year 2000, I hope to have learned something useful for my country. Everything will be more computerized, and I hope that I will understand how information technology can be used to protect those people whose human rights are being violated by military dictators. Burma needs rebuilding. Its unknown civil war is more than a half century long and still going on. Burma is a land of fear a land of killing, forced labor, human rights violations, sexual abuse. It is a land of lies. I'm looking for the day when Burma will be free, when the hatred, racism, and human rights violations cease. I'm hoping that the year 2000 will bring not just new technologies to Burma, but also prosperity, reconciliation, democracy, and peace.
8: This is a piece from Aung San Suu Kyi's Letters from Burma entitled, Young Birds Outside Cages. Um, A few years ago, my husband and I had the opportunity with a friend to have an evening at Suu Kyi's home. Um, This particular excerpt really struck me, and um, so I'm also going to have to preface it by saying, Every time I've rehearsed it at home, I've had a really hard time getting through it because I get all mushy, but here we go. Throughout the years of my house arrest, my family was living in a free society, and I could rest assured that they were economically secure and safe from any kind of persecution. The vast majority of my colleagues who were imprisoned did not have the comfort of such an assurance. They knew well that their families were in an extremely vulnerable position in constant danger of interrogation, house searches, general harassment, and interference with their means of livelihood. For those prisoners with young children, it was particularly difficult. In Burma, those who are held to endanger state security can be arrested under a section of the law that allows detention for a maximum period of three years. And prisoners who have not been tried are not entitled to visits from their families. A number of political prisoners who were put in jail for their part in the democracy movement were kept there without trial for more than two years. For this time, they did not see their families at all. Only after they were tried and sentenced were they allowed family visits. These visits, permitted once a fortnight, lasted a mere 15 minutes. Two years is a long time in the life of a child. It is long enough for a baby to forget a parent who has vanished from sight. It is long enough for boys and girls to grow up into young adolescents. It is long enough to turn a carefree youngster into a troubled human being. 15 minutes of fortnight is not enough to reverse the effects on a child of the sudden absence of one of the two people to whom it has habitually looked for protection and guidance, nor is it enough to bridge the gap created by a long separation. A political prisoner failed to recognize the teenager who came to see him on his first family visit after more than two years in detention as the young son he had left behind. It was a situation that was familiar to me. When I saw my younger son for the first time after a separation of two years and seven months, he had changed from a round-faced, not quite 12-year-old into a rather stylish, cool teenager. If I had met him in the street, I would have not known him for my little son. Political prisoners have to speak to their families through a double barrier of iron grating and wire netting so that no physical contact is possible. The children of one political prisoner would make small holes in the netting and push their fingers through to touch their father. When the holes got visibly large, the jail authorities had them patched over with thin sheets of tin. The children would start all over again, trying to bore a hole through to their father. It is not the kind of activity one would wish for any child. I was not the only woman political detainee in Burma. There have been, and there still are, a number of other women in prison for their political beliefs. Most of the children, except for those who are too young to understand what was going on, suffered from varying degrees of stress. Some children found that their schoolmates avoided them and that even teachers treated them with a certain reserve. It did not do to demonstrate sympathy for the offspring of a political prisoner, and it was considered particularly shocking when the prisoner was a woman. Some children were never taken on visits to prison, as it was thought the experience would be too traumatic So, for years, they were totally deprived of all contact with their mothers. Some children who needed to be reassured that their mothers still existed would be taken on a visit to the prison only to be deeply disturbed by the sight of their mothers looking wan and strange in their white prison garb. When the parents are released from prison, it is still not the end of the story. The children suffer from a gnawing anxiety that their mothers or fathers once again might be taken away and placed out of their reach behind barriers of brick and iron. They have known what it is like to be young birds fluttering helplessly outside the cages that shut their parents away from them. They know that there will be no security for their families as long as freedom of thought and freedom of political action are not guaranteed by the rule of the land.
7: has one of the fastest growth rates of the HIV virus in the world. An estimated 400,000 people are HIV positive according to WHO figures, but some inside observers acknowledge the number could be as high as one million. This next piece is an excerpt from an interview with an infected widow whose husband died of AIDS. It's called The Long Distance Lorry Driver's Wife. a year ago. We didn't know what was wrong with him. We thought it was just an He kept on having fevers which took a long time to go down. We thought it was malaria. The doctor tried treating him for that, then for pneumonia. Then my husband suddenly lost a lot of weight and it seemed as if all his energy had gone. He had to stop driving his lorry. Then sores appeared all over his body and went away again. We thought it was just ringworm. It was when he began to get big herpes-like blisters that our doctor told him to go to Rangoon to have a blood test to see if he had AIDS. We had to pay much more for that blood test than for an ordinary one, nearly 2,000 chat instead of 300. At first it seemed too much money, but then I decided we had to know what was wrong with him if we were ever going to get the right medicine. We got the results straight away. They told us he had AIDS and he should go to the isolation hospital. It was then that the nurses explained to us about AIDS. I can't even describe how we felt. So much bad news at the same time. All I remember hearing is that he couldn't be cured and would soon die. They told me to have a blood test too. My first thought was of my two young daughters. I prayed that they would be spared even if I had caught the disease. One of the nurses from the hospital showed me a condom. I'd never seen one before. It was like a balloon. When they told me what it was for, I didn't dare look at it again. I suppose my husband caught the disease from a bad woman. You see, he's a lorry driver. Going all over the country, he's bound to have a bit of fun with other women when he's away. I know that. My husband said he wanted to look, to be looked after at home. So we came back and bought the necessary medicines. Our local doctor gave him some injections. No, the doctor didn't use fresh needles. I saw him sterilizing needles and using them again. And I can't say I blame him. He only got 50 chut for each injection he gave. A fresh needle costs 10 chut. My husband only lasted about six months. It might seem quick to you, but my sisters and relatives thought he took too long to die. After he died, I did everything to set their minds at rest. I poured paraffin over his bed and clothes and burned them all. I sluiced the house down with hot water and buried the things he used to eat with. Then I went straight to Rangoon with my two daughters to have our blood tested. I was really happy that they didn't have HIV. As for me, I'd always assumed I'd got it. The nurses said I would. The fear of death when it really faces you is like nothing you've known before. But for the sake of my daughters, I had to be strong. I thought I mustn't die too soon. The nurses told me to come back as an outpatient once a fortnight. We came home and I told my parents-in-law. The lorry my husband drove was sold off. They couldn't bear the sight of it anymore. Now the whole town is waiting to see if I've caught the disease. They all stare at me when I go to the market, wondering if I'm getting thinner. I try to dress better than before and make myself look as nice as possible. Some market sellers seem reluctant to serve me, so I go elsewhere. I haven't missed a single hospital appointment, but people don't realize where I'm going. I always take care to get nicely dressed. The nurses at the hospital tease me, asking me if I found myself another man. Just before I die, I will tell my older daughter everything, so that she knows to be afraid of this terrible disease. They're very good girls. It's my daughters who give me strength. For them, I will live as long as possible. Sometimes I can't help thinking though that my husband and I never did anything bad to anyone to deserve this. We just earned an honest living.
6: The next item is a short poem written in 1988 by a writer and honorary PEN member whom we shall call Ataram who is currently serving 20 years in jail for challenging one of the myriad laws controlling the rights of Burmese citizens to freely associate, travel, speak, and publish. We're not dead yet, not dead yet and we still are not satisfied. This order has the authority of law. This martial law is military law. This is a court without prosecution, witnesses, advocates, pleas, or rulings. No need to consult the law book or frame an argument. Just call us seekers of true justice, not Burman, Shan, Kachin, or Kaya, regardless of our nationality. One shout of do-aye adds up to at least three years behind bars. The distribution of three lines of poetry makes a 20-year sentence. In this place, they now call Myanmar. Well, dictators, you should know this much. Although National Day is an auspicious date for those who are truly patriotic, for egotistical despots who have no such feelings, it is an inauspicious one.
2: In case every, uh, everyone's thoroughly depressed by now, we have something to perk you up, another editorial comment in the New Light of Myanmar from June 1996 against two else, Da Aung San Suu Kyi. Just in case the uh, rhetoric is difficult to follow, the ogres is Da Aung San Suu Kyi, and the country of ogres refers to the United States. The modern-day ogress is pretending to be a mother in order to turn the country into a vassal state of the imperialists characterized by servitude and loss of independence and in order to sell the country and the people to the imperialists. She is using sweet words laced with deception by pledging love for the country and the people and by claiming to have a desire for the country's progress. She, she protested and rejected the right of the defense services to lead national politics, branding them a fascist army engaged in oppression and torture. She also says there, there is no human rights and democracy. The ogress, who is pretending to be a mother but cannot hide her true nature, is showing her fangs and is concocting fabrications while saying, quote, please withhold international assistance for development of the country until I have obtained power, quote. The modern-day ogress approached and infiltrated the National Convention, which is like a lake of calm. She plotted and attempted to replace the state constitution, the soul of the nation, with the soul of the ogress, When she could not influence or destroy it, she began to reveal her ogress nature more and more. The modern-day ogress relentlessly criticized the National convention, which was a pure, tranquil, and peaceful nature like that of a lake. The ogress stole and consumed the state constitution, which is like the heart of a small sun. She blatantly plotted to replace it with the charter and, and servitude granted by the country of the ogre, ogres. The country of imperialist ogres systematically made plans to implement this scheme by selecting and assigning this modern-day ogress. In other words, the modern-day ogress can be called a puppet who is carrying out the instructions of the country of the imperialist ogres. The modern-day ogress who is <clears throat> pretending to be mother will not be, will not be saddened or pine or cry for the country, which is not her own. Even if the nation and the people are ruined, with the people's skeletons piling up and the blood flowing into the ocean, she will turn the scorched land into, into palace crowns and people's skeletons into a throne, and she will wash her feet with the blood of the people and anoint herself as an empress under the influence of the country of ogres.
3: is <laughs> another piece by uh, Aung San Suu Kyi from her, her book Letters from Burma. Recently, when a friend asked How things were, since the authorities had taken to barricading off my house periodically, I replied that that things were fine. I was simply carrying on with my normal life. At this she burst out laughing, yours is not a normal life, in fact it's a very abnormal life and I could not help but laugh too. I suppose the kind of life I lead must seem very strange to some, but it is a life of which I have become accustomed and is really no stranger than a lot of things that go on in Burma today. Sometimes, as we walk around the garden while the road outside lies quiet, my colleagues and I agree that we were, if we were to write about our experiences in the form of a novel, it would be criticized as too far-fetched a story, a botched Orwellian tale. No doubt, there are other countries in the world where you would find the equivalent of the huge billboards brazenly entitled People's Desire Reading. Oppose those relying on external elements, acting as stooges, holding negative views. Oppose foreign nations interfering in the internal affairs of the state. Crush all internal and external destructive elements as the common enemy. But I doubt that in other countries you would find just around the corner from such an advertising xenophobic proclamation a gigantic baby doll welcoming tourists to visit Myanmar year, Bizarre is the word that springs to mind. Fascist Disneyland, one frequent visitor to Burma commented. There is so much that is beautiful and so much that is wrong in my country. In the evenings, when I look out to the lake from my garden, I can see the tattered beauty of the, there's a flower that I'm not, casuarias, the tropical lushness of the coconut palms, the untidy exotic banana plants, and the harshness of the barbed wire across the edge of the shore. And across the still waters, festooned with clumps of water hyacinths, is the mass of a new hotel, built with a profit rather than elegance. As the sun begins to go down, and the sky lights up in orange hues, the Burmese refer to this hour as the time of blazing clouds, and also as the time when the ugly turns beautiful. How simple it would be if a mere turn of light could make everything that was ugly beautiful. How wonderful it would be if the twilight were a time when we could all lay down our cares of the day and look forward to a tranquil night of well-earned rest. But in fascist Disneyland, that velvet night is too often a time deprived of light in more ways than one. The more real darkness of night in fascist Disneyland is that so many political arrests are made during the hours when all decent people should be resting and allowing others to rest. Visitors to my country often speak of the friendliness, the hospitality, and the sense of humor of the Burmese. Then they ask, how is it possible that such a brutal, humorless, authoritarian regime could have emerged from such a people? Burma is indeed one of those lands of charm and cruelty. I have found more warmth, more love, more courage, and more caring concern among my people as we hope together, suffer together, and struggle together than anywhere else in the world. But those who ex- ex- exude hate and vindictiveness and rave about crushing us are also Burmese, our own people. How many can be said to be living, leading normal lives in a country where there are such deep divisions of heart and mind, where there is neither freedom nor security, where we ask for democracy, all we are asking is that our people should be allowed to live tranquilly under the rule of law, protected by institutions which will guarantee our rights, the rights that will enable us to maintain our human dignity, to heal long festering wounds, and to allow love and courage to flourish. Is that such a very unreasonable demand? Hi, can you put up
7: the lights a little bit, please? I'm Maureen Twin, the director of the Burma Project. And I noticed that not everybody has a program, so you probably, you probably should know who read what. And I would like my remarks consists of thanking the readers for coming and reading, and for the audience for coming. Um, could you just stand up and face the audience so we can thank you Probably David Byrne. Spalding Gray.
8: Wendy Loyong.
7: Adele Lutz. Michael Perdiniti, Luke San, and I'm afraid
8: Rose had to leave early. Thank you very much. If you want to know about Burma, these are free um, briefing books. Everything's here, websites, uh, more than you want to know
7: about Burma, probably. So if you'll turn out the lights, we're going to let the modern day ogres have the last word.
9: if I had any choice in the matter, I'd like democracy tomorrow, because our people are suffering so much. The longer this regime continues in its policies, the more we suffer. We get poorer and poorer, our, our uh, young people get less and less educated, um, we, we, we get more and more out of step with the rest of the world, the health of our, our people gets worse and worse. There's nothing, we can't show anything in the way of progress. Well at one time we used to say that the only thing at which Burma was tops was the heroin production, uh, poppy production, but apparently even in that now we're number two to Afghanistan. Well, I'll have to repeat what I've always said before, that they should work in concert, uh, they should coordinate to implement the terms of the General Assembly Resolution on Burma. The General Assembly Resolution on Burma is is very complete, but it needs to be implemented. The, the terms of the resolution need to be in implemented. Uh, it calls for dialogue, it calls for the right of the Um, people to participate freely in the political process, it calls for the release of political prisoners. It has everything necessary to start a genuine democratic process in Burma, but the terms need to be implemented. I think they should not be just made to remain on paper and that's what the international community should be doing.
4: And so
2: within
3: that context...
0: of an interview with Ansan San Suu Kyi broadcast at the United Nations General Assembly uh, a few months ago and we'll have an opportunity to see a bit more of her at the close of tonight's program. I'm Lyndon Chubin, program manager at the Asia Society and we are delighted to be presenting with Penn American Center, a program to commemorate the 10th anniversary of the pro-democracy uprisings in Burma. When Penn contacted us in late September about collaborating, we jumped at the opportunity to join them in developing a program which would heighten public awareness of Burma's struggle for free expression through the power of words. We have a very distinguished group of readers.